Our episode today is made possible by the Expert Institute. Expert Institute helps firms expand your bandwidth without having to bump up your own employee headcount. It does that by allowing access to its team of in-house medical experts and by connecting lawyers with industry experts in virtually any type of industry you can imagine. That's why Expert Institute has been the choice of over 4,000 law firms nationwide. If you're listening to this podcast and you go to expertinstitute.com forward slash elevate, E-L-A-W-V-A-T-E, you can redeem an exclusive 25% off discount available to our listeners only. This will give you a great opportunity to test out this service and see what it can do for you. This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravi Pudi. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. My name is Rahul Ravi Pudi. And I'm Ben Gideon. Today, I'm really excited to introduce one of my close friends, Kalpana Srinivasan. She's the managing partner of Sussman and Godfrey, a 130-person lawyer um, boutique law firm focusing on both plaintiff and defense work across the country. They do bet the company litigation on both sides. Kulpana focuses on the plaintiff side. Um, she's a real underachiever as a South Asian uh, woman. She graduated from Yale undergrad in journalism, became a journalist, um, and then moved on to one of the worst law schools on the planet, Stanford Law, <laughs> where she uh, graduated from Stanford and then joined the law firm of Sussman and Godfrey. She joined the LA office, which was just a four-person outfit at the time she joined there, and then she grew that practice into being one of the largest parts of this Houston-based law firm. And her success as a lawyer has been unparalleled. Her success as a South Asian and a female lawyer has been unparalleled. She's broken so many glass ceilings, and a $700 million verdict is one of those amazing accomplishments she had. Uh, but in addition to that, she's been a real leader in the community and in her firm and in pushing diversity and is now the managing partner of Sussman Godfrey. And so I'm excited to talk to her and Ben is as well. And we're going to learn a lot about uh, her secrets of success. Uh, thanks for having me, Rahul and Ben. I'm excited to be here. No, we're excited to have you. And I know we've been friends for a long time, and it's been amazing watching you shatter all these glass ceilings. Um, South Asian woman joining a Houston-based firm, getting $700 million verdicts, becoming a co-managing partner. So I want to get right into it. What's it been like climbing the ladder as a woman? It's been exhilarating and challenging and sometimes disheartening, all rolled up into one. Uh, it is, uh, there's been amazing opportunities and I do feel today that we're on the brink of something significant happening in our profession. Uh, but I also think that getting here required a lot of will and a lot of willingness to work within our institutions to try to bring about change and to accept that that change may take some time to come. Uh, there's still, especially in the courtroom, 
where Rahul, you're very familiar being in trial, a real dearth of women in trials, in major arguments, in mediations, handling significant settlements. And so while I think there's been a lot of change and and a lot of new ground broken for women to come up in the profession and, and show their skills, um, there is still a room to move ahead and to demonstrate that they can be in all parts of the profession, um, from writing briefs to taking depositions to obviously being on their feet in court. Uh, and my own experience was very much driven by getting the chance to do that uh, at a fairly early stage in my career. I think it was career changing for me to be in positions where I could be visible and be seen, both to enhance my skill set, but also to develop a reputation on my own and to develop business and referrals. So uh, that's a long way of saying that I'm really excited about where we are in this moment. I have a lot of young female partners at my firm that I'm very excited to work with and to see where they end up. Uh, But the road uh, in our profession has not always been smooth, and you have to take some of those bumps to come to the other side. So at Sussman, when you started, how many lawyers were in the L.A. office? There were four when I came in to interview. Uh, I was clerking at the time. So in some ways, if you if you had asked me when I was in law school whether I wanted to go to an office with four people, I would have said absolutely not. <laughs> I wanted to be somewhere where there was a bigger group or I could meet um, subgroups of people and find like-minded uh, colleagues. But I do think having clerked, my view of that was different, that you could have a small intimate group and really share in each other's career development, that you could collaborate and that it could be formative. Um, And for me, and this is really the benefit of hindsight, I had a real opportunity to shape the way the office developed, which I didn't recognize when I was a perhaps a young whippersnapper interviewing at the time thinking about my journey, but uh, it did give me the chance to do that. And so Maybe it was a quote unquote riskier move at the time to go someplace small that was developing and growing, but it was certainly uh, beneficial for me in the long run to have done that rather than going to a, a much larger firm where it would have been harder to fork my own path. You and Raul have been friends for a long time, but we just met for the first time today. So I'm just really interested. I've read a lot about your current success and I mean, your your credentials are impeccable and you've accomplished some amazing things. Could you take us back a little bit and kind of bring us back to the, the beginning of the story and tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you, you came to be a managing partner of one of the most uh, prestigious trial law firms in America? Uh, sure. I started off as a reporter before I became a lawyer. And I always think that piece of it is important because I learned a lot of skills there that helped me hit the ground running when I did come out of law school. I was a reporter for the Associated Press. I was a daily print reporter, had crazy deadlines and learn how to amass a lot of factual information and turn it into uh, digestible material in a very short period of time. 
I really loved working with witnesses down the road, but interviewing people for stories and and trying to develop leads and ideas. Uh, I did that in Washington for four years. And towards the end of that, I started covering communications policy, internet policy. At the time, there was a lot of deregulation around telecom and cable, trying to encourage the advent of broadband internet um, and wireless internet, which we all take for granted now. Uh, So I was very interested in technical subject matter, even though I had no technical background. Uh, And I had to write for a very general consumer audience at the AP. So it was a great opportunity to learn how to get in the weeds on something, but be able to describe it at a much higher level. Uh, And then I was interested in in translating that skill into being a lawyer um, and went to Stanford, which for me was particularly exciting because I felt like uh, being close to Silicon Valley, some of that energy and uh, tech excitement would rub off on me. Uh, in being in law school, but also getting to learn about some of the cutting edge applications of the law in this very fast moving consumer arena. And after law school, I came to Los Angeles to clerk for uh, Judge Raymond Fisher on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, who who passed away, unfortunately, last year and has been a mentor, an important figure in my legal life. I was really, uh, really interested in working with him because he had had such an interesting and diverse career. He had had a really successful career in private practice. He had been at the Justice Department as the number three person there in the Clinton administration and then he had moved on to the bench. And I learned so much, uh, obviously, being a clerk and thinking about uh, career paths and futures and and ways to bring together your different skills and experience. When I came to the end of my clerkship, I actually really liked being in LA. I felt there was some different energy here that as a young lawyer, there would be more opportunities. Uh, The market felt open, a little less hierarchical, perhaps, than some places. And I went with that feeling. Uh, I totally changed my life plan. I decided not to go to the East Coast, start a life here. Uh, I really had never lived in LA before, so it was a, a small leap of faith. But you know, given how amazingly nice it is here, not not that so big. <laughs> um, and then I I interviewed at this small office of Sussman Godfrey. I. I knew about the firm. Uh, My co-clerk at the time was from Houston, and she uh, ended up going to our Houston office. And so I had learned a lot about the practice. But when I went to the office, I was really floored by how different the feeling was. It was a lot of energy in the air. Uh, people were, you know, knee deep in cases and arbitrations, getting ready for trial. There was a lot of running around happening, and I love that. Uh, it was starkly different from some of the other places I interviewed at, which were great firms, but felt sedate and quiet and lawyerly. Um, And probably some aspect of it was that I too was different. Uh, I was a South Asian woman looking to have a a real trial law career. And uh, I think the firm being a bit eclectic and different and the office feeling a little free made me feel more comfortable. Um, And so, 
I began my career there and just didn't leave. <laughs> uh, the Being in the LA office was a great opportunity for me. I had a chance to really be involved in every aspect of the office's development um, from hiring to figuring out how we expanded our practice areas uh, to increasing the brand of the firm in Southern California. And, and again, a lot of that had to do with the fact that the firm's not very hierarchical. And so I could come in the door and um, take the lead on a lot of things without having to wait my turn or to feel like that was not appropriate for me. Um, I do think my experience in growing and building our LA office helped position me to move into this role as co-managing partner. Uh, and I worked with and tried cases with partners and lawyers in all of our offices. I've spent time everywhere in the firm and have a deep understanding of how the firm operates. So um, th that's sort of the journey. Um, I think I was very fortunate to be in a place that let me do a lot very early on. Uh, I was at the firm probably 16 months when I got to try my first case, which uh, actually backing up, when I started at the firm, my first task was I was handed a list of 300 witnesses. Um, and my now co-managing partner uh, said to me, OK, we'll go figure out who we're going to call at trial. Um, and sight unseen, he he had no idea if I knew what a good trial witness looked like, uh, but he entrusted me to go figure it out. So I spent the next two or three months on the road, flying and driving all over, meeting these potential witnesses. And uh, people who were in the LA office were like, where are you? What, what Are you in the firm? What's happened? Because I was just gone um, off on this mission by myself. Uh, and every week I would send a little summary of what I thought, who the best witnesses were. And I was developing relationships with the witnesses, getting input from them. Uh, we had, And at the end of the day, I generated a list of my top 25 witnesses. Here are the people we should call. Uh, and a year later, we ended up trying the case. And basically, that was the witness list, was the 25 people I had identified um, in this very long uh, multi-month trial in Minnesota State Court. And I felt it was incredibly empowering to have been given a, a challenging and difficult task that that somebody somewhere assumed I was up to doing, uh, and that it ultimately ended up being very important to the outcome and the disposition of the case. Uh, and so, you know, for me, that's that story really is emblematic of the firm. Set the bar high and and let people show you what they can do, and don't assume that they can't do it. Start start from a different place. Uh, and uh, the skills that I was able to develop early on really shaped my career in a different way than if I'd been anywhere else. And, and frankly, it gave me a lot of confidence that this is something I can do. I have the judgment and the acumen to figure out what a good trial story looks like. Um, and so, you know, that really made all, all the difference. So th those were the early years. And, and then from there, uh, and over time, I personally became really interested in continuing my my previous journey with technology and intellectual property issues. And today, that's most of my practice. 
um, in addition to obviously uh, serving as co-managing partner of the firm. Well, let me ask this, uh, Kalpana, just following up on that. How did Sussman Godfrey become a firm where there was no real hierarchy? And then how does that work? Uh, a lot of it was driven by the vision of Steve Sussman, our founder. Uh, he really, uh, I, I would say that part of it uh, that began with um, you know the notion that we were going to have a contingent model, that you should bet on outcomes and results and not simply uh, on the you know, on how many, how much time you spend on a case. And so that uh, really shaped his view of how you put together a team. You put together lawyers who learn the ins and outs of every aspect of the case so that they're equipped to do any task on the case. And he had a really strong philosophy that when you went to trial, uh, that you would split the work and the assignments among everybody on the team from the most junior lawyer to the senior partner. And you know, culturally, that was really significant. And it's really different from a lot of firms where there's an assumption that the most senior uh, lawyer is going to do everything at trial, or they're going to be the ones to take the key depots or argue the big motions. And that was just antithetical to the way Steve thought about things, in part for economic reasons. It certainly reverberated around the lawyer world last summer when uh, Steve died unexpectedly in a it was it wasn't he in a bike accident and then developed COVID. Um, I remember hearing about that and just thinking that was such a huge loss for the trial world. I, I'd known about him through uh, some organizations where he works for uh, sort of social justice issues. Um, that's how I first came to know about him. But how did that impact your your firm, given what a huge sort of larger than life figure he was, both I'm sure in and outside of your firm? We lost our uh, moral leader, our uh, inspiration, but his legacy is really imprinted all over the firm. Uh, we have uh, we are a firm of lawyers who have largely been trained under his philosophy and the way he, that he approaches cases, business, uh, his views about how you should handle disputes. We have had that ingrained in our culture, and so. Of course, it has been an enormous loss for the firm, and it was a very difficult period, especially not being able to be together and to share our memories of him in person. But his influence and what he taught us and the, the really the unique culture that he built continue to influence what we do every day and they live on in his work and frankly his broader influence in the legal industry generally about how we improve the profession and how we focus on the rule of law how we think about trying to reach a right and just result uh, and certainly his very um, impassioned work on behalf of jury trials, which he spent a lot of time on in, in the last years of his life. You've referenced culture a few times, and a lot of our listeners are either owners or partners or associates coming up in, in their own firms and are interested in this concept of how to build a better culture for themselves or their firms. So can you talk a little bit about how you do that at Sussman and exactly what that culture is? 
Sure. I do believe this, this idea of not being very hierarchical is an important part of it. We want everybody invested in the outcome and the success of the firm. We don't hire a uh, hundred associates with the idea that four are going to end up being partners. We hire associates with the idea that every single one will be a partner. Uh, we really try to promote transparency in how the firm operates. When associates come to the firm, they know when they'll be considered for partner. We don't, that's not something they have to lobby or jockey for. They just know. And I think that's uh, an important aspect of their work and, and feeling that they're part of something bigger at the firm. Uh, there's a lot of transparency around the business aspect of what we do. And I really believe that's critical for firms today and into the future to move away from having financials or having important decision-making be a black box. It makes it very hard for people to feel that they have autonomy in your organization or they have a future or that they should care when they're excluded from some of the really critical um, aspects of what makes your firm work. And so we have always, we have incredible transparency with the partners and even with the associates, we do a session with them on financials every year. We want them to understand uh, how the business of the firm works. We, uh, we are a firm that does a lot of alternative fee work. Steve Sussman was an innovator in contingent fee and class action work. Today we do everything under the sun from uh, fixed fees and with contingent kickers to reverse contingencies to uh, partial hourly with some other bonus structure at the end. Uh, but any case that is a non-hourly matter, we vote on as a firm every single week. We vote on it one lawyer, one vote. Uh, that means everybody from me to the newest associate has an equal weighted vote on those matters. So when we invest in a contingency case, when we've decided as a firm to take that, it is a collective decision. We're risking and gambling together. Uh, but we also want everybody to be bought into what we're working on. And we have a weekly meeting where people present the merits of their uh, case and their likely recovery, how they analyze what the potential damages are, how they're gonna staff it, how they got the business. Uh, and that I, also helps cultivate the judgment of our younger lawyers about how they should be looking at cases that they're trying to bring into the firm, especially ones that are not hourly. But this process of voting on it firm-wide and having everybody vote on it uh, has really served us well, both in terms of having a culture of people being invested in the work, but also in terms of learning and, um, and, and learning how to analyze issues and to collaborate with one another. Um, Rahul, you asked earlier about hierarchy. We Sometimes those memos come around and an associate will ask a partner a bunch of critical questions about the case. Like, well, is this legal theory viable? Or did you think about this defense that the other side may raise? Um, so moving away from the notion that uh, everybody at the top has the answers is, I, I think, an important part of building that culture here. That creates a lot of confidence for those young lawyers when they start having that interaction with the sophisticated senior partners, too. It, it absolutely does. And we run our trial teams like that. Uh, most of our cases, we have 
Uh, I, well, all of our cases have a task list where all the tasks are laid out and we have a weekly trial team call on our cases to quickly run through them, make sure everybody is staying on top of what they're doing. Also, a Steve Sussman innovation. Uh, but in most of our cases, that task list is run by an associate. Uh, the associate is thinking about what needs to be done, not just the obvious deadlines, but what do they need to do to push it forward? Uh, what are the, the areas of the case that need development? What's the evidence we should be gathering for when we face that summary judgment motion in six months? And having to think more strategically like that is a big part of how these associates are trained. Um, but it also is empowering for them. They will assign work to partners and say, uh, this is your task for this week. Can you make sure you look at this transcript or make sure you're editing this brief and, and hold partners accountable in the same way? And that is an expectation in our firm by both the partners and the associates. So it's not a surprise when you get that email from an associate telling you that you're overdue on something that you uh, have as your assignment. You know, uh, Sussman has a reputation for hiring Supreme Court clerks and other federal circuit court level clerks. So you are hiring people that have really you know, exceptional credentials, generally speaking, and keeping those people engaged and keeping them at the firm, that strikes me as a, a real challenge, especially with the kind of egos that tend to go along with people that think that they want to be trying cases. So can you talk a little bit about how you manage to, you know, create a cohesive team of people where you have lots of probably large egos and people that have these kind of ex exceptional credentials who there would generally be that uh, centrifugal force that may pull people out. So how do you deal with that? In terms of what keeps people there, uh, I, there is a lot of autonomy. There's a lot of freedom to figure out your career path, uh, to, to contribute, to be a responsible uh, young adult lawyer from the get-go. And I always think of that as something that I observe to be really different for me from other places that I, I, I learned about or heard about. And coming in the door, having already had a, a mini career, uh, I didn't really want to be babysat or have a lot of layers between me and and prime time, right? I, I wanted to be able to to get in there right away, and so I do think that's one thing that keeps and attracts um, very smart, bright uh, young lawyers is that they they have all the skills, but they're also going to get a chance to utilize them, and they're also going to get some degree of autonomy to figure out how to do that. How do you balance? having a, a important deposition and a big case, other case deadline on the same day? How do you get ready for your first major argument? Um, in terms of you know, figuring out balancing, uh, I mean, we have lots of smart people, of course, and so you're, uh, they all bring different things to the table, but I think we move much more towards the collaborative model of having uh, you know, valuing even the people who may be the newest or youngest or um, the the ones that have the freshest ideas and takes on things. And I I think our partners are really comfortable with that too. Um, that it, that 
they're not always on the ground. They're not the ones digging through the boxes of documents. They may not have taken all the depositions. And so uh, listening to the insights of some of our younger lawyers is an important part of what's going to move the case forward. What's the philosophy at Sussman for nurturing? You've got 130 lawyers. All of them are trial lawyers or potential trial lawyers. Being a trial lawyer can be a grueling job. What's the philosophy over there to nurture these lawyers to have a long and happy and successful career as a trial lawyer? It's really important to keep reminding young lawyers that it's a it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, we have what is effectively a six-year partnership track right now for lawyers who are coming in off a clerkship. And I think there can be a feeling like, well, I'm on a sprint. I just need to get to the end of that six years, and then I'm a partner. And then it's like, oh, wait, actually, that's just the beginning. Um, and so we really try to show them um, that the arc is long in what you're trying to accomplish. Part of that is showing them what happens on the other side in terms of business development, bringing in clients, uh, learning to develop and uh, finish and start a case from top to bottom, and, and really getting them interested in that piece of it so that they aren't so focused on just a to B, because I, I, I think that can be a recipe for saying, I just want to, I'm going to grind through the next couple of years, I'm going to become a partner. And then uh, you might find yourself exhausted at the other end of it. So part of it is, is sort of making it clear that there is a path ahead, that we are invested in them for the path ahead. We are not just uh, having them do idle tasks just because it helps our case, but also because we want them to learn how to ultimately become productive and successful lawyers in their own business. Um, and it does require uh, feedback and mentoring and close observation. And, and that's really, even as we've grown, I, I feel like we've real, still really retained that aspect of our culture, which is a very familial sense where people socialize and spend time together. Um, even now, when we are virtual, uh, people having one-on-one -on -one Zoom chats and making sure we have a good sense of how uh, lawyers are doing, not just performing, but doing. Are they uh, getting the space they need to spend time with their families or take off time for themselves. We moved over the past couple of years, we have moved to a really robust uh, parental leave policy. We have adopted an unlimited vacation policy for associates and have talked to them about how important it is for them to make sure they are making that space in their lives. So it is a multifaceted um, issue because I do. It's important that young lawyers understand that there's a lot that lies ahead beyond just becoming a partner, and that we want them to be well equipped for that, but also to have the energy and have the enthusiasm and excitement, um, and not be uh, burned out on what they're doing when they enter what should be the really exciting phase of a different part of their career. Now, on a 
on a long-term level, those are some of the nurturing qualities, but looking at a short-term level, focusing on you for a minute, seems like you do a lot of long trials. And I remember going into trial and I did back-to-back two-month trials. And when I got home, my wife and kids greeted me with welcome home balloons because I was gone for so long. Uh, There's a whole different psychological and physical tax taxing that can happen in these long trials. How do you balance that and deal with it? It's definitely evolved over the years. Uh, I would say, you know, that first trial, I had a four month trial and I could work 18 hours a day, day after day after day, month after month. And it was, um, great and exciting but I didn't really feel it until the very end. Uh, Nowadays, I would say that I need a little more pacing and that you have to figure out what you need um, to to reach that or accomplish that. When I was in San Antonio for three months when we tried the House Canary case, I discovered that there was a really amazing uh, path that went along the San Antonio River. And so I'm not a runner by any means, but I would certainly go out for a run or a walk or a jog um, most days, even if it was really short, because I needed that uh, mental space or break between the court day and getting ready for the next day. The balance between taking care of yourself and getting ready is one that I think is a challenging part of our profession because we are trained to uh, do everything we can to prepare for any outcome. And that means that you're never totally satisfied with how much you've done. So it's hard to say, well, I'm done with my prep for this witness. I'm, I'm going to go to bed for the night. Uh, but I would say I've tried to force that a little bit more in recent years and trials, which is to uh, to give yourself the the freedom to say, at some point, the marginal benefit is diminishing and I need to get some rest. Um, I also, uh, one of the things that's really incredible about trial is just the bonding experience and having that time with your team to go out and have a drink or go do a fun activity together. Steve was a huge proponent of that, finding something like going bowling as a trial team or having a movie night. And I really think that's important too, something that allows you to enjoy the experience of being together, but also gives you a chance to refresh and reboot uh, and take your mind off your work, even if it's for a short period of time. And, and I think those are some of the things I found to, to work for the long haul. Um, and, you know, giving yourself the odd afternoon off to do something f- refreshing mind that will help you to get back into it and really focus. So we're going to take a short break right now. We'll be back in 60 seconds and talk to Kalpana more when we return. Today's episode is being brought to you by the Expert Institute. I've started using Expert Institute, and I find it to be a great service because I can send a case out to them. They can have their in-house experts look at it and talk to me about it before I invest valuable money and time by sending the case out to outside experts or spending my time on the case. Raul, I know you guys have signed up with Expert Institute, too. What do you think? They've been great. We've been using them on a lot of cases, and a lot of times we have a hard time finding an expert on a unique issue. And as soon as we call Expert Institute, they are 
are able to hone in on exactly what we need, and they find from their large Rolodex of experts the most competent and well-qualified experts across the country. And so it's been great working with them, and it's been great working with the experts they've provided us with. Yeah, it's amazing the kind of subjects one might find an expert on. Uh, It's all over the map, and however crazy or unique the issue is, they seem to be able to find somebody, which is is really helpful. So if you are interested in checking out their service, Expert Institute has created a special discount just for our listeners, 25% off on your first expert review. To redeem that, go to Expert Institute dot com forward slash elevate e-l-a-w-v-a-t-e give you a great opportunity to check out their service try them out see what they can do for you we also want to thank hype legal for sponsoring this podcast hype legal was started by good friends of the pod tyler and micah i've been working with those guys for years when they were over at high impact they do an amazing job Micah actually built out all of these digital marketing and web uh, infrastructure over at High Impact, which is fantastic if you check it out. And they've left and started their own company where they're going to be helping law firms do the same. They do a really great job. If you check out all of the graphics for our podcast, Elevate, uh, they've designed all of that. Raul, I know you know those guys well, too. Definitely. And I've been working with Micah for well over a decade, and he's an absolute professional and uh and a really detail-oriented guy. I think Tyler and Micah are going to do great with Hype Legal, in large part because in the marketing world, if you have one company that's providing services to every single law firm, it is like bringing sand to the beach. And all of the uh, marketing that will be done will just be homogenous across the board. You need somebody who's going to actually be dedicated to your firm and providing unique services to you. And anybody that Hype Legal uh, gets contracted with will get that unique uh, level of care. If you're interested, you can check them out at HypeLegal, H-Y-P-E Legal.com. Calpata, I had a question for you about the House Canary case that you tried recently to a 700 plus million dollar verdict. First of all, congratulations. That really was an amazing result. Thank you. <laughs> it was an exciting and, and once of a lifetime experience too, to be in trial. And I would encourage anybody who hasn't read about that case to read some of the background about it. It was really an incredible story. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that in, in, a, in brief? Uh, but then I have a couple of questions about that after you tell the listeners what the case was about. Sure. Uh, I and my others on my team represented House Canary, which is a real estate uh, valuation analytics company. We were sued by a company called Title Source, which is an affiliate of Quicken Loans, uh, for breach of contract because we had been in a contractual relationship with them. The contractual relationship had never yielded anything for my client in terms of payment because they'd never been paid a dollar uh, for the work that they did. But the the purpose of the relationship was for House Canary to build uh, several products for Title Source, one of which would be uh, the ability to do an appraisal for a home remotely using the analytics that House Canary had built. The other was the ability to value a home that could then be used in the process of securing a home loan or doing a refi. Um, These have all become increasingly important in the way the mortgage industry and loan industry works today. Uh, My client uh, provided TitleSource with 
uh, AVM, the automated valuation model that it had developed, which is an analytic algorithmic model to predict home value. And uh, title source used the information that my client provided to reverse engineer and build a competing product, which they were using internally. Uh, some of the quirks of the case, uh, my client was sued, House Canary, for breach of contract, but over the course of that case, it turned out and we began to realize that, in fact, the technology that we developed had been misappropriated by title source. So we were the defendant and the counterclaimant in the case. We were not the plaintiff. Uh, we went second at trial, um, but were really the injured party. Uh, the other thing that was really remarkable is that for the bulk of the case, Title Source denied that it had an AVM at all. It said, we don't have one, we're not developing one, we're not in the business of developing it, uh, which were the same representations they had made to House Canary during the course of the business relationship. So it was a uh, shocking and landmark discovery when we found out that, in fact, they had built a competing valuation model. Uh, contrary to what we'd been told in discovery, contrary to what our client had been told. Uh, and then uh, as the discovery unfolded and as trial unfolded, we were able to demonstrate that they built that valuation model using our technology. It, it really is an amazing story. And w the one question I had about it was that this case came in initially, as you mentioned, as uh, a, your client was sued, so they were the defendant. Did you recognize immediately that the uh, real focus of this case would be to turn that around and to file counterclaims and to pursue title source for stealing your client's uh, intellectual property? Or was that something you only came to later after further investigation into the case? And I guess that raises the question, and, and I don't you don't have to disclose this if it's confidential, but... You talked about how Sussman entered into various uh, types of fee arrangements, alternative fee arrangements, and are you at liberty to share what kind of fee arrangements you had in this particular case? Sure. I'll start with the first question. Uh, it was uh, it caught House Canary off guard that they were sued uh, over a contract that they never been paid any money on. So it, that in and of itself seemed a little strange to the company. Uh, they uh, and it came after Title Source had tried to get House Canary to effectively retract some of the restrictions on the use of House Canary's data. So uh, it, I, I do think the company had concern about what was happening and why and what what was motivating the lawsuit against them, uh, but it. And as we got into discovery and as we learned about uh, ultimately about title sources competing product, that's when it really crystallized that there was intellectual property theft happening. So, uh, you know, we came into the case, we, we represented House Canary from the get go. We were originally defending them. Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps there was a an assumption that a smaller startup company that was sued wouldn't have the wherewithal to fight back or to figure out what was going on or to pursue their own affirmative discovery. But uh, we did. And eventually were able to figure out the real story, which was that there had been um, this brazen theft of our of our clients technology. 
we began the case as an hourly matter defending House Canary. Uh, but shortly before trial, and really when we got into learning the depth of the theft, we um, offered to and converted the case into a contingent matter. Uh, because we uh, obviously liked the merits of the case and uh, felt that it was we were now a plaintiff and we could do that. So we ended up on a contingent arrangement with the company, and, and that is public because there was an attorney fee proceeding at the end of trial. That seems like it was a wise choice. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was, and, and it also, because it was a lengthy trial, a lengthy proceeding, there was quite a bit of post-trial proceedings as well. Um, it, it obviously would have been a substantial burden on the client too. So uh, we were able to reach an arrangement that um, allowed us to continue and allowed the, the client to have the benefits of, of our view about being able to share risk with them. And can you tell us the end of the story? What happened to House Canary and how is it doing now? Does it own that automated valuation model and is it going to be able to use that going forward? And what happens with Title Source? I know that it changed its name, but what's the ramification other than paying the huge verdict of stealing your client's technology? Um, our client is uh, still in the valuation analytics business. They are still offering um, different types of valuation models. They spent years, frankly, developing the most accurate way to uh, predict algorithmically home values and analyze what's going on in the housing market. So that continues to be a really successful area for them. Uh, shortly after the verdict, around the time judgment was entered, we sought uh, injunctive relief for a going forward basis from title source. And they, at that time, advised the court that they were going to stop using their own AVM, uh, that they would no longer utilize it, uh, even though they didn't uh, they continued to contend it wasn't based on our trade secrets, but they nonetheless would shut it off. So uh, as we, as best as we know today, that's still the case. Changing topics a little bit and circling back to something you commented on at the beginning of this podcast, which was about we as uh, trial lawyers maybe being on the brink of uh, female lawyers and people with diverse backgrounds having more involvement in trials. Can you tell us a little bit about Sussman and Godfrey and maybe what you have done to, to help that culture and that process at your firm and how that may have had some ripple effects across the whole field of litigation? Because we do allow young lawyers to have prominent speaking roles, to have stand-up time at trial, to argue big motions, uh, philosophically, Steve always believed that if you wrote the brief, you should argue it. Uh, that has had benefits that flow also to women and diverse lawyers because it is critically important that they have the opportunity to be visible in the courtroom. Um, one of the things that 
I really feel that we have mastered doing is getting clients comfortable with the idea that your trial team will have uh, an array of lawyers, that they will represent you, that they will all have significant roles in your case. Um, obviously, when you have a contingent case, it's easy to tell your client, look, we're sharing risk. You should try if we trust our young lawyer to go stand up and do this argument, you should too. We're in it together. Uh, but surprisingly, we've done the same thing with some of our very large corporate clients. And they are much more amenable to it than uh, I think we sometimes hear firms say. Uh, you sometimes hear firms or some senior lawyers say, well, you know, I don't think the client's going to like it if I allow so-and-so to take this important um, role at trial or take this argument uh, or, or depose this key witness. And that is an assumption that I don't think is holds true. Uh, it requires some development of a relationship between the lawyers and the clients. You can't just throw a new lawyer into the mix and ask the client to entrust them with the most important responsibilities in the case. But if the young lawyer uh, has been working with that client, has been involved in uh, client issues, has been running the trial team calls, has been handling key tasks, then it's often not a shock to anybody's system when they get up and do a significant argument or handle something important. Um, and I say that about young lawyers because uh, the the change in our demographics, of course, is really happening at that level most significantly. And so giving young lawyers the opportunity to do things has the effect of ensuring that diverse and female lawyers get to have important roles too. So that's one thing that um, I feel the firm is held tight as a core principle, regardless of who our client is. Uh, and it is something that I feel strongly about in the profession because I, we need to get past the the stated reasons why we don't give more opportunities to different lawyers and really drill down on whether they are true or not. Um, as I go into a lot of hearings, even today, I don't see, especially in IP cases, I still don't see a lot of women. And, and I don't know the answer to why that is, but we need to start asking harder questions. Um, the other thing that's helping to motivate and, and fuel some change are judges, frankly, saying, I want to see different leadership. I want to see different people at trial. Um, and that, again, helps perhaps uh, some lawyers to go back to their firms and say, look, this is what the judge wants. So we, we ought to give it to the judge. Um, but it is, uh, I, I'm really I, I believe it's an area where the profession could work harder to figure out how to do it, how to do it right, how to do it in a way that allows that diverse and female lawyer to succeed, um, rather than holding on to some of these notions that I think are outdated and are often unsupported. Are you seeing changes in the behavior of the judges or uh, opposing counsel? Because even if you may improve the culture within your own firm, most of the time you're dealing with lawyers that are not in your firm that you have to get through to get to the result you want. What, what are you seeing day to day in your practice, good or bad? 
I'm seeing a lot of firms that are um, committed outwardly to certain changes, and I would like to see that commitment on display in court. And uh, I am not above telling some of my opposing counsel that you have this great lawyer who did great work on this case, did a great job in this deposition. Why can't she have a witness at trial? Or why, you know, why isn't she here arguing this issue? And maybe they think I'm um, I have some ulterior motive, but I don't. I just feel that. Uh, it's easy to create those opportunities uh, and we just have to push ourselves a little bit to do it and and to feel comfortable doing it. Have you ever heard this uh, or anybody say, well, the system's just fine, Kulpana. Look at you. You're co-managing partner of Sussman Godfrey. So clearly good lawyers make it to the destination they're entitled to make it to. Then how do you deal with that? A few ways. One, um, I see lots of good lawyers every day that I don't get to see doing what I think they should be doing. And so there is, it shouldn't be a unicorn phenomena. It's uh, some of the things we do are very challenging and very difficult, but not all of it is rocket science. And there should be we should be flourishing. There should be plentiful <laughs> numbers of women and diverse lawyers getting to do those things. Um, second, uh, I am very glad that I can do what I do and hopefully uh, serve as a reminder that it is uh, possible and that there is a path to achieve that. Uh, and I feel very fortunate that I have the right combination of being in a good place and working with great people who gave me those chances. But those opportunities, again, we should be making them available widely and broadly. And and in the absence of having the, had those opportunities, I wouldn't have been able to do um, what I did and gotten where I was able to in both the firm and in my practice. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And I hope my being in this role changes people's views of what the person in the role should look like. But um, there's plenty of room for more. And that's where we need to be headed. Given that you uh, probably see a wide range of different practice areas from the IP that you're personally involved in, but all the other practice areas that Sussman is involved in, and looking ahead to the future, are there areas that you believe uh, are ripe for opportunity and growth in the next decade? In terms of subject areas, one, antitrust is evolving and developing and maybe more broadly unfair competition. Um, our firm was actually built on doing really significant antitrust cases, and uh, we continue to and have done them ever since, but some of the individual Section 2 cases became more challenging to bring and not as uh, common to see in civil practice. But I do think we are um, at a moment where we are reconceptualizing what unfair competition means, what some of these harms in the business place mean, uh, the recent uh, slate of litigation against big technology companies I, are going to force people to, uh, to think about how the law can 
uh, cover those situations, um, particularly how we think about damages or harm to competition uh, for some of these services where they don't charge anything for the service, but there's certainly an impact on innovation and the types of offerings consumers can have. So um, there's a there's because of all of the activity in that area, I do believe both the legal system, the courts, lawyers, um, experts are going to be thinking about how we reframe this question of of defining unfair competition and measuring how it harms uh, competitors and how it harms consumers. So I see that being a really active area um, in the road ahead. And, and I think that there had there's been some reluctance to jump in and figure out how to grapple with, um, you know, what might be some traditional uh, forms of claims like a Section 2 claim and defining markets. How do you apply that to uh, these new technologies, uh, technology platforms? But it seems like there's a real commitment to forge that path ahead, help courts figure it out, and um, try to come up with a way to, to tackle some of those thorny issues in the law. Um, and intellectual property, uh, trade secrets, has been an active area, continues to be an active area, and I expect it to be um, even more so as, uh, as the years pass on. Of course, being in our virtual environment, we're seeing a huge number of employee theft issues and theft cases, uh, but also recognizing that uh, there are a lot of companies out there who are innovating, who are doing so in areas and spaces that they don't necessarily seek patent protection, uh, but that there's a lot of value in what they're able to generate. Um, and that the idea, again, of what is valuable and what can be utilized really successfully in the marketplace, like data and analytics, um, that there needs to be a mechanism to protect that, uh, especially when you are dealing with potential competitors or dealing with big companies. So those are two areas in particular that really jump out at me. Um, we are obviously seeing a lot of interest in more plaintiff side or risk sharing arrangements by firms, firms that never did plaintiff's work before. Uh, and I think that trend will continue because uh, it's fun. Uh, to be on the plaintiff side and the driver side, but also there's a new marketplace for uh, funding for you know different fee structures, and that's opening some of the conventional wisdom away from saying, well, we just do we are just on one side of the V. If you're a firm that handles both plaintiff and defense work, how do you deal with the conflict issues, especially if that's going to be a, a broader spectrum and more firms are going to do that? It's it can be tricky. In our case, because a lot of cases come to us as uh, initially as individual matters, as opposed to, um, you know, we don't do typical counseling work, we don't have a transactional practice, we, are, we do purely litigation, and a lot of our matters come to us with uh, clients who have an individual case to bring. Uh, we've been able to navigate that uh, pretty successfully, and in particular in, a, in two areas that I can think of. In the areas of technology and intellectual property, we largely represent startups or medium-sized companies, uh, IP holders, uh, and typically don't represent much larger technology companies, although have on occasion done that. Uh, in the area of employment work, we have 
handled some very significant and large defense of employment class actions uh, and are not so commonly on the plaintiff side of those cases. Uh, a lot of those things have just evolved organically based on people's practice at the firm. Um, but we also, you know, really think about them in terms of bringing in and new matters, developing client relationships. And uh, I think the structure of our firm and being a, a litigation shop and one focused on trying cases and bringing cases to conclusion has helped us to do that in a way that may be more difficult for firms that have other um, non-litigation practices where they have long-standing institutional clients that embed a conflict issue they can't sort through. You talked about funding of cases and, and different structures that are used. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Are, are you self-funding most of your cases or do you have different structures for different types of cases involved? We self-fund a lot of our cases, really all of the, uh, uh, we self-fund our class action work. Um, we uh, self-fund our uh, most of our other contingent matters. Uh, some of our clients will come to us with an arrangement whereby they may have a funder involved to handle the case expenses, um, hard costs. But we're very comfortable gambling on cases. I mean, the firm was founded as a contingent firm that really wanted to bring the principles of contingent work that had been used in smaller matters to big, big ticket commercial cases. And the philosophy of the firm is we want to bet with our clients, we want to partner with them. Um, we are frankly, always looking for ways to try to align our our interests and our rewards with our client. Uh, we have no limit on the kind of fee structures that a partner can come up with and present to the firm, and they span the gamut. Um, we do it even in defense cases where we might say a client wants to get a matter resolved within a certain period of time, or they have almost a certain to find, have a finding of liability, but are looking to mitigate their damages. So we might do a reverse contingency. If we can get your damages below X amount, we'll take X percent of what we were able to save you. Um, we, uh, if we're able to get your case settled in six months and that's an important goal for you, then we get a kicker of X. Uh, so we, uh, we really wanna understand what the client's trying to achieve and try to do something that allows us to pair the way we work with what their end goal is. Um, we're not a uh, pyramid structured firm. We are pretty much a one-to-one. And so the way we succeed is by getting a premium on our time. We're not there to, to solely bill hours, but to figure out how to be creative and thoughtful and outcome oriented so that our client gets a great result and we get paid for helping them obtain a great result. Um, so in today's world, it is so diverse, the kinds of arrangements that we engage in from uh, traditional old school pure contingent to uh, a fixed fee with a lower contingent rate to some partial hourly uh, with a success bonus that might be flat. Um, really, anything is on the table if it works for uh, the client and, and we can make the economics work for the firm. 
And, and to go back to something Raul had asked earlier, I mean, when you have that, both of us do contingent fee cases. Uh, the cases that I try tend to not range in the a plus or minus one billion dollar range, though. So for the lawyers that are there, which is really a, a you know bet the company kind of litigation, where your client is, this is an existential issue for your client and for your own firm, where the fees on a seven hundred million dollar contingent fee case versus a loss are just the enormous difference in in that. And you're you're away trying a case over a course of what I understood was about three months. Um, that compounds and builds on itself to be an enormously uh, pressure-filled situation, as I'm sure you can uh, speak to in a personal way. How do you manage that? And how does your firm develop a culture where people can go and do that? Because, of course, you always have the risk of loss, and uh, that goes uh, part and parcel with trying cases, you know, high-risk cases like that. Absolutely. I, I, You really do have to go into it with the idea that if you haven't lost cases, you're not trying enough cases. So that is a, a critical message we try to make sure everybody knows. Uh, we love to go to trial. We want to take those cases that go to trial. But uh, the inherent risk in that is that you don't win and you need to be emotionally prepared for that part of it, too. Um I, there is a different kind of uh, energy slash stress that goes with gambling on yourself and on your team, uh, the, an outcome where the firm uh, only is rewarded if they're successful. Um, I think it's a it's a good kind of stress for me because it really helps you to think about the issues that matter and uh, try to really focus on what's dispositive to the outcome of the case rather than maybe getting distracted by all the noise that we see in litigation the day to day. Um, at the end of the day, sometimes it helps you to step back and say, it's great that we've had our 10th meet and confer on this side issue, but what is ultimately going to lead to us successfully resolving the case uh, for the client and monetizing the case for the firm? Uh, but it, it does create a different kind of pressure dynamic. Um, I, 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 the most important lessons or one thing we do is do have lawyers talk about their lessons learned good, bad, and ugly, the cases we've won, the cases we've lost, uh, what what we thought, uh, you know, is a postmortem, maybe we would have done differently in hindsight, what we couldn't have changed at all. And that's really an important message to share with all the lawyers. There are um, things that you would always maybe have done differently. There are also things that are totally out of your control. And it's, uh, I, I think that by sharing those stories and talking about them and, and not, um, you know, having it be uh, something that anybody feels individually bad about, it takes away some of that feeling. Um, and one of the reasons we do vote on all these cases as a firm is so that we are collectively taking the responsibility for that risk. Uh, and I know it's hard when it's in your mind and you're the one trying the case and it's your case that um, could make it or break it and, and is obviously important to your client. But we don't really want lawyers to have the sensation that uh, that the firm is depending on them to bring home this winner. <laughs> uh, we, we made a decision together that this was a good bet. And 
so we're we're going to deal with whatever the result is as a firm. Um, the other thing I would say is that, uh, and also with the benefit of time and hindsight, is that it it and building the practice is that one of the reasons we are able to do it and sustain having a, a big contingent and alternative fee practice is because we have been doing it a long time and have a lot of cases. And I know from talking to some other lawyers who have said, you know, I'm interested in, in trying to take on a contingent matter. Um, and I always say you absolutely should, but that is a lot of pressure <laughs> to have one contingent case that you're you're trying for the first time and you're getting used to the risk and and the the, the you know balancing the the stress of trying to move that along with everything else. Um, we do have the benefit of having done that this for 40 years. And um, it helps us uh, because we can look back and look at a long overall trajectory of, of being successful. But um, you have to recognize that in allocating and spreading risk, there's bound to be some things that don't go as you predicted. And so I think that's helped a lot. Uh, with sort of seeing that long track record and knowing that there are stories of of people who lost trials, but that that over the long haul, over a really wide docket of cases, that that is invariably going to happen. First of all, Kalpana, thank you so much for joining us. I want to ask you maybe one wrap up question. Looking back on your career, is there any advice you can give to young lawyers on how they can succeed on the long journey of being a trial lawyer? I would definitely say to push for those chances to be seen, to be seen in what you really do. Uh, give people the opportunity to observe you in your element. Uh, that is not always easy to do when you're just starting out, but over time to make sure that you uh, get to go to court, that uh, you get to take a key deposition, that uh, you are being able to show off your skill set. And that really has a lot of long-term benefits to your career development. Of course, getting to to take on those types of assignments is great and rewarding in and of itself. Uh, it's also important to uh, assure yourself this is what you want to do and it, it's the type of career you want. But a lot of, in my experience, a lot of business relationships, a lot of referrals, uh, a lot of long-term growth um, in, in your client development comes from people having seen what you, in your element, and having seen you successfully do your legal work. Um, and, and the other advice I would give is to recognize that it is a long path to achieve everything you want in the profession and to, um, uh, to take the lows and the highs as they come, but maybe not ride the up and down every day. And it's really hard to do as a young lawyer, frankly. When you're a young lawyer and somebody sends you that crazy email or opposing counsel is really aggressively in your face, it is easy to internalize that and have that be the focus of your day or your week. Um, and it is really important to remember that your battles that you want to be fighting should be in the courtroom. It's, you can't fight every adversary every minute of every day. That's mentally and physically exhausting. So preserve some of that energy. 
try to not let yourself get caught up in that so that you can focus on on taking on the important battles um, and the important moments uh, and and having the the wherewithal to do that. Kalpana, thank you so much for joining us on the Elevate podcast. It was great having you. Thank you, Rahul, and, and thank you, Ben, for having me. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E.net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.